Welcome to London's New York. This is a show about New York City, and it's built around conversations between me and a friend of mine, Dan London. He's a historian, a grad student in the history department at NYU, and also a philosopher, a socialist agitator, a part-time tour guide, and one of the smartest and most interesting people I know. He loves New York more than anyone I've ever met. And in this series, I'm letting him take me and you on a tour of his New York, places that are off to the side of the usual tourist trail, each revealing something interesting and maybe surprising about the history and spirit of this amazing city. And we're going to start this show somewhere you might not expect for a series about what is almost certainly the most capitalist and secular city in the country, if not the world. We're starting in a church, specifically the massive Cathedral of St. John the Divine on Amsterdam Avenue between 110th and 113th Streets in Manhattan. It's a crazy mishmash of Gothic and Romanesque architecture, and its main space is one of the biggest open rooms I've ever been in. Certainly one of the most imposing. The scale is really incredible, and it's it's amazing how when you walk in here, you're, you're forced to whisper. Like, there's nothing telling you to, but... No, I mean, there's this... Right now we're standing in the apse of the cathedral and there's this great profusion of pillars that are about, I would say, six, seven stories above us and immediately the sense of scale. I mean, on in the sidewalk there are street lamps, there are signs, there are decorations that are close to your eyes but here people are just dwarfed and it's not the dwarfing that you see in a Rockefeller Center or next to a skyscraper it's you you are enveloped and sometimes lobbies try skyscraper lobbies try to create this sense of you are beholden to the architect but here there's this it's on an entirely different level of the heavenly city you know, I have to say, standing here, um, it's not entirely a pleasant sensation mm. to be enveloped in this space. There's something kind of, it, it, it forces you to feel small in a way that I find kind of uh, d- disconcerting. It takes, some, uh, in some ways, an even more sinister uh, appearance as we go further into the church. I mean, you compare this church to St. Patrick's, and St. Patrick's is entirely lit up. It's beautiful, it's pristine, there's all sorts of nice frills and ornamentations, but, I mean, where we're standing now, it's almost terrifying. I mean, this is the part that I remember seeing as a boy, and it still almost frightens me. You're looking up at the ceiling, and there's just, it's pitch black. And you're looking ahead, and out of this blackness is emerging this apse, and it's in fearful symmetries, as William Blake would say, the symmetries of this this rising altar, and behind it this blazing Christ figure with a light coming in, and then above it this window 
that's clearly beautifully ornamented, but the light is just barely peeking through. And it's all these different shades of of what faith can be, this shining thing and this dark thing. And all in all in the context of this great black void. I mean it's it, this is a necessary building and this is why I think this is the most important building in New York in some ways where New Yorkers have to become come face to face with the existential fears it's one of the my most amazing experiences I've had in New York actually was here where there was a performance of Debussy's La Mer uh, this late 19th century symphonic piece and this whole space, this gigantic apse, were just crowded with people, not just standing up, but people having to go up on these pillars a little bit to have to stand, sort of inhabit every nook and corner of this building. And I got there a little bit late, so I was just going through this crowded, this crowded city almost, this enchanted world with this music going through, and everyone just wrapped staring and listening and it was as if all of New York or all of civilization was here in one place and together letting this sort of eerie rumbling wave of beauty suffuse them and I got a sense of I mean, it was, it was similar to the, the definition of sublime, which is just beautiful and terrible at the same time. It was as if it was sort of the end of the world, where people were forced to gather in this cathedral and just all together praying as if for some kind of salvation that was coming to them in the form of this music. And the people in their desperation climbing beyond their prescribed places on the floor but having to climb up the sides of the cathedral it was as if it was a civilization about to be ruined um i mean this is a place of seriousness it's a place where you have to dwell to a certain extent on the scale of things and it's not nice to be reminded of where you are in the scale of things in some ways and it's not accurate to think that this is the only scale of things, that we're only minute compared to the great things. But, I mean, in every church, every church is a place where people are married, people are born or baptized, and people are buried. And all of the circles of life that aren't in our house happen there, and it forces you to dwell. And I think that being in this cathedral, the scale of it is doing something similar, being confronted with the questions of what kind of, what is this, this thing, this man? So why, why a church? Why is a cathedral the most important building in New York? Why that cathedral? Well, other than your own, (laughs) you know, moment of bliss there godly is not the first adjective most people would apply to New York City. Mm. In some ways, this church seems to set itself apart, quite literally, from the dominating logics of uh, kind of corporate capitalism and the sort of infrastructure that supports it in the lower parts of the city. 
I mean, you have uh, these banks that look like temples. It's as if uh, Jesus threw the moneylenders out of the temple and the you know moneylenders like, oh, sure, we'll just build our own temple, right? So all of these things around uh, capitalism, it's their own form of faith. There's all sorts of assumptions around human nature and human worth and what the ends of life are for that are built into those things. So if you are seeing New York through... Uh, a certain lens, it's full of religion, but it's just an incredibly vapid kind of religion of uh, dog-eat-dog, you know. And and on the converse, in terms of the faith, a kind of leftist or liberal faith in the need for social justice, that there's a possibility that we can improve things on Earth, which is in some ways one of the core tenets of Judaism as it's come to evolve, I think. Um, then there's a tradition in uh, New York's political history that is suffused with a kind of religious yearning uh, for c- communion and peace between people. There's any number of counter spaces in New York. You know, you could look at Union Halls, you could look at Washington Square Park, you could look at the East Village, and those all represent a kind of grassroots opposition to the dominating forces in the city and in America. But the church uh, represents something a little different, I think. It's romantic, maybe, but it's representing a continuity to a much older set of priorities. It's a kind of building that you don't really, it's kind of architecture you don't immediately associate with New York City. It's this massive kind of medieval sense of what a what a building should be. What what do you think it's like to have that kind of incongruous thing in the middle of well, a city? I mean, the irony is, in a sense, Gothic architecture have always been very incongruous within cities because when they first started going up in the Middle Ages, cities were not Gothic. There was no Gothic city. There was a Gothic church surrounded by vernacular huts and small buildings and whatnot. But the church always stood apart from its surroundings. It was always looked a little different. And it's ironic because the whole community often would revolve around the church. The church was this great temporal power, but it was not, it did not look like it belonged in many respects. It was almost like it didn't exist anywhere. It didn't belong anywhere. It's this strange, fearful kind of architecture. And so churches always seem a little out of place in cities. They've never given themselves over to a whole form of urbanism. The closest we get to that are college campuses, ironically. You know, in the early 20th century, a lot of colleges like Princeton and Yale tried to create mini cities based on Gothic architecture because they were trying to imitate Oxford and whatnot. But, you know, it's always fun to see them try to adapt Gothic to an auditorium or a lunch hall or a dorm or something. It's, it's always a little weird, you know. And of course, it's especially weird in America because we uh, borrowed all this architecture from Europe. We brought it over wholesale. But even in Europe, it was it's never as fitting to its community as maybe some Americans think that it is. So it, it really is an architecture of sort of awe and fear and well, of separateness. Of, of, of separateness, I think. I mean, um, you know, there's any number of maybe churches that could be a little more humane, but I think um, St. John gets in a way that not too many other American 
spiritual buildings do, much less just churches or cathedrals, the sense of awe and sort of terror that could accompany a lot of religious or spiritual feeling. Let's talk about Judaism for a minute, because mm-hmm. you, you are a, a Jew. I'm the tribe, yeah. Not not to out you. I'm not a to... Jew. I'm just Jew-ish, you know? Yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> um, but it, what does it feel like being a, a non-Christian, being in your case, you know, a Jewish person, to be in a monumental space that is overtly Christian? The values of Christianity or the sort of meta-narratives of Christianity, which is about sacrifice and redemption for the sake of um, a whole other, for entering a whole other world, whether it's heaven or for bringing redemption collectively to humankind through the actions of gods or angels. That is so different from the messages in many aspects of Reformed Judaism. You know, for so much of Judaism, it's about doing good in the world here, which is an enormous thing. It's what brings spiritual energy and the energy of tradition to so many of Jewish activists today. You know, they can say, our tradition is that you help the people on earth now while you're alive. But what it also what that does is it gives humans a great degree of power. It really is saying humans can control things. I, I also grew up in Reform Judaism, and I don't know the mythology of Christianity. Just the, it's so powerful, and it's so different. I mean, it's so Christianity is spiritual is is sort of aggressively spiritual in a way that a lot of Judaism isn't, which is much more sort of practical. You know, growing up, I didn't really have any special association. The the synagogue architecture never really did it for me because the synagogue architecture, you know, what distinguishes a synagogue architecture from a Christian church? I mean, you're seeing a Torah, you're seeing a Bema. That's like a podium for you guys out there. Yeah, but there was nothing. and But in, in a sense, it was commiserate with the message of a lot of these reform sermons, which was this very sort of vague, do good for other people, be nice, sort of these Enlightenment era things, which are important, but um, it was not the same as going to a church where these there are these stories and myths, these v- acts of violence and sacrifice on every wall, and where, you know, this ornamentation and design is running this gamut from the great domes of St. Paul's to this intense, fearful symmetries and fearful um, darkness that you find in the Munster cathedrals or in uh, St. John's. You know, if, when you go to a Catholic service and they're stressing, you know, the sinfulness of man, the powerlessness of man, you don't have to go all the way with that, but there is a truth there. And how do you transmit, translate that into architecture? And for me, St. John and some of this Gothic architecture actually does that. Just fundamentally, the kinds of values and stories there are hitting these notes that I just don't get in many other circumstances. It has to do with the kind of narratives that the architecture is expressing, which is not about be nice to other people. It's about, you know... You are you are this little worm, uh, and you know what what are you going to do about your fallen state? I mean, New York is New Yorkers are not 
notorious for being humble. Right, right. Let's say. I mean, this is a city where people overtly come to become a master of the universe in, in Tom Wolfe's... Um, yeah. And so what do you think the function of a city like New York that's so ambitious and aggressive and, you know, is well, of a, of a yeah. giant awesome quiet well, how, how like can that. you yeah i mean how can you be humble in new york it's a very good question um i could i could read a quote from uh what's his name the guy who did great gatsby uh f scott fitzgerald uh that relates to this i could pull it up quick sure yeah go for it um from the ruins, lonely and inexplicable as the Sphinx, rose the Empire State Building, and, just as it had been a tradition of mine to climb to the plaza roof to take leave of the beautiful city, extending as far as the eye could reach, so now I went to the roof of the last and most magnificent of towers. Then I understood. Everything was explained. I had discovered the crowning error of the city, its Pandora's box, Full of vaunting pride, the New Yorker had climbed here and seen with dismay what he had never suspected, that the city was not the endless succession of canyons that he had supposed, but that it had limits. From the tallest structure he saw for the first time that it faded out into the country on all sides, into an expanse of green and blue that alone was limitless. And with the awful realization that New York was a city, after all, and not a universe, the whole shining edifice that he had reared in his imagination came crashing to the ground. <laughs> so this, I mean, it's an anecdote, but it's, again, this notion of, you know, what bring, can bring humility to a New Yorker. And when you're surrounded by nothing but concrete, you can lack that. So the only way of getting that is through parks or by being on such a tall building that you are managing to peek over the parapet and seeing a little bit of the limitless. But, you know, between nowadays, you know, you could look on top of the empire and you could see suburbs going still pretty far. So what we're left with are, you know, we have buildings, we have people we're looking at, and with through the internet, of course, you know, we're endlessly going to be clicking on our own, you know, promoting our own knowledge, our own intelligence. So, yeah, no, it's it's a tough place to be humble. That's for sure. Why, why is that important? You know, obviously it's a space, profoundly a space, back to St. John's, that, that's designed to create this feeling of humility and this feeling of 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 awe before you know the, the 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 massive power of of god or or whatever um why is that an important thing why is that good well, for us well it's a, i mean the traditional folly of let's say urban planners they see the city from the sky um they look down they imagine they can move people at whim they can move buildings at whim and they are a not aware of how their plans could affect people, but also they're not aware of, um, you know, building in one place could have these repercussions that they would have no idea, you know, could happen based on the actual behavior of humans in them. The 20th century is the century of overweening ambition of ideologies that have no bearing or no connection to how humans understand and live their lives. And so being humble about your theories and your hopes um, is very important if you're not going to cause 
untold destruction and suffering among people. There's so much of a movement now, I think, in spiritual communities around mindfulness. The emphasis is on um, recognizing that your thoughts are not you, that you are something apart from your immediate needs and wishes, that your thoughts are often confused and wrong, and you somehow need to get perspective on those things. So the way we're getting perspective is often through mindfulness, meditating in your room or whatnot. But there's a history of New Yorkers trying to stress this kind of humility, this kind of detachment from the self. And it's been through parks, but it's also through some religious edifices like St. John's. And um, too many churches in some ways don't do give you that kind of detachment because they're bringing you into them as this conscious appreciator of ornamentation, of light, of sermons, of texts. But St. John, if you're in the right mindset, it gives you a sense of, um, it envelops you with this sense of uh, a very fruitful insignificance, um, surrounded by the darkness, by the suffer by monuments to the suffering of others by um by people who are built by people who are dead who are different than you um it gets you out of yourself um you know when you're up on top of a bridge and you're looking at the whole city all the people you realize you know that compared to them, you're just one person, you're insignificant, but at the same time, there's something very mighty and ennobling about that realization that you are part of this collective enterprise, right? So that's what going to some of these churches can do, and uh, I wouldn't be mentioning it if there were lots of places like this, um, but there aren't really in New York. You know, I, ironically, the people who actually run the church are these liberals whose message is very similar to Reform Judaism in that let's change the world, let's make the world a better place. It's very pro-human. But they're doing so in the context of a structure that's saying all is lost, repent. You can't do anything. It's a, it's such a funny juxtaposition. I think that's uh, that's the tension that we always have to live with, you know, how much we can do, how little we can do, that we're better than we think we are and we're far worse than we think we are as well. My name is David Hoffman. With me, as always, is Daniel Wartell London. London's New York is a production of Race Car Radio, www.racecarradio.com.